Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Taufik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. My very special guest on today's podcast is my older sister, Morningstar Tricky. When I was thinking of guests for Women's History Month, she came to mind right away. I've looked up to her and admired her since day one. When I was coming of age and she was entering her 20s, I worshipped her like no other. Morningstar has been singing as long as I can remember. My little sister Layla and I would beg to hang out in her room with her friends, listen to music, and watch them rehearse. Her voice is magical and stops me in my tracks every time I hear her sing. I remember being mesmerized as I watched her outstanding performance in the musical Hair when I was only 10 years old. Besides being a charming older sister and gifted singer, Morningstar is a phenomenal woman in many other ways. I'm thrilled that she has chosen to share her journey with us, the Roots of the Spirit community, of growing up experiencing racism, her drive to become a singer, and surviving a near-fatal car accident, which resulted in her becoming an amputee and subsequently a disability rights advocate. Most notably, Morningstar is the fabulous mother to my beautiful, bright, and charismatic nephew, Thelonious. Morningstar is currently a member of the City Soul Choir, a secular Vancouver community choir led by music director Brian Tate. I have immense gratitude to Brian, who is an award-winning composer, musician, choir director, and educator, for granting me permission to use his absolutely stunning song, Hold On, Don't Let Go, on the podcast featuring soloist Morningstar Tricky. The content and discussion in this podcast will necessarily engage with racism, ableism, and experiences of emotional and physical trauma. My intention is to provide a platform from which we can engage bravely, empathetically, and thoughtfully with difficult content. Morning Star Tricky, I'd like to cordially welcome you to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. Thank you. I'm looking forward to being here. <laughs> <laughs> Ordinarily, when I have a guest, the first question that I ask is, how do we come to know one another? <laughs> but you are my sister, you're my older sister, and you're the first child born in our family. So I don't have to describe how we met. <laughs> you probably might yeah, have a collection, but I don't. <laughs> No, I met you when you were very, very young. <laughs> In fact, That's I think I've known you your whole life. <laughs> That's so cute. You know what's so funny? People ask me when I say my sister's name is Morning Star. They're like, is her name Morning? And then her middle name is Star. And I'm like, you know what? That's still up for debate. Is it Morning Star? No middle name? Tricky? Well, legally, it's Morning Star is my first name and it's two words. But try and tell that to any government agency and they lose their minds and then they eliminate the star because they can't get their heads around that. So <laughs> it's Morning Star, two words, capital S, and no middle name. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Hopefully you've been listening to my podcast. Of course. <laughs> I say that because one of the things that I've been aiming for is having casual conversations about identity, heritage, the social construct, race, racism, and social justice issues. And interestingly enough, I was having a conversation with Minnie Jean, our mother, and mm -hmm. she listened to my latest podcast. <laughs> and she said, are you going to interview anybody who doesn't have a story to do with me? And I was like, yes, mother. However, <laughs> that won't be me. <laughs> <laughs> so I say that just as a, a foundation for our conversation. And the conversation. Well, she is a touch 
touchstone, right? Like she really is in terms of framing all of, you know, the perspectives we have of the world around us. She is a touchstone. So yeah, you can keep her in the, <laughs> in the frame because she's important. So not Thank just you. as our mother. Preach, sister not girl. Just, so yeah. Not like, just as our mother to our to understanding where we are in society, what's going on, how we got here, why we haven't fixed things yet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I was trying to explain to her, or what I was explaining to her, all of the podcasts that I'm super obsessed with. It's very interesting to hear how they became acquainted with their guests. Usually it's through a connection somehow, some way, has an interesting story associated with it. But also I've been saying that it is because of our mother that I have grown to know the civil rights and social justice community. So hence, that's why she will <laughs> be centered in many of the conversations that I have. Yeah. And also she brings, I mean, because of, because of her, for lack of a better word, her celebrity, we've been exposed to some incredible people who are doing incredible things, you know, like not to sound like, oh, our lives are so special. But I think in some ways she's opened a lot of doors for us just by virtue of her experiences. So yeah, I, I hope she remains central. No pun on the word central. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's funny. <laughs> Even though I'm having casual conversations with all kinds of awesome people, when I am speaking with a family member, there's like a level of comfort. And you know what I'm saying? Like a casualness and realness that cannot be, you know, replicated. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Even thinking about doing this, I was excited, a little nervous. Then I'm like, it's my sister. I can talk to my sister. We do this anyway. Yeah. And the thing is, like in my journey, and I'm curious to know from your perspective, I mean, I'm going to start at the very foundation and we'll work our way toward the present. But people are really, in, people are really interested in our perspective as the next generation and just by nature of the fact that I worked at the Central High National Historic Site and that whole experience for me, I've been directly asked that question several times, what it's like to be the daughter of Minnie Jean Brown Tricky. And I think it's going to be awesome to ask you that. We've had the conversation, but also just to bring a whole fresh new perspective. But before we get into that... So we grew up in Northern Ontario, Canada, and there's six of us, children to yep. Minnie Jean Brown Tricky and Roy Tricky. And you and Isaiah, who's my older brother and your younger brother, were homeschooled. Yep. And I'm curious yep. if you can give me an understanding of like how you grew up, what it was like, and also the experience of being homeschooled. When I was really young, I didn't really know the difference between being homeschooled. So we grew up on a huge farm in sort of the middle of nowhere, nestled in, what is it, northeastern Ontario or northwestern? Someone will have to correct me. But the, you know, it was a childhood of homeschooling doesn't surprise me because we had so much freedom. Um, we were wild children, really. I mean, brothers got axes for their birthdays when they were really young. We used knives. Like I'm not, this is not some survivalist stuff that I'm talking about. <laughs> it legitimately were exposed to a lot of things and very capable kids. Like drove a tractor when I was about eight. You know, I mean, we were typical farm kids in the sense that we rode poor ponies or horses, chased cows and from one pasture to the next, milk cows, 
helped shear sheep. Like we really had kind of a, I mean, some people would think, oh my God, that was horrible. But for me, that was a really free childhood. So not going to school was seemed like a logical <laughs> extension of that. And being homeschooled, I think, I think at the time, like when I, I started school in grade nine, but I think at the time when I really wanted to socialize with other kids, I think I resented it a little bit because people who went to school seemed to be, they had birthday parties and bosom buddies and, you know, but I found out when I entered school that wasn't quite the way it worked. And I think our parents were trying to insulate us from the harsh effects of racism that we would and did experience going to a public school or any school, I guess, in the environment we were in. I think that originally when they moved there, it was sort of a rejection of a world that saw everything through a racist lens and class-based and, and sort of back to the landy kind of thing. But really, and I think I've talked to our mother about this too, I think that part of her, she said, we couldn't send you to those schools. Those kids would have <laughs> taken you out. And when you know, in later years when you guys went to school, the younger kids went to school, we found out just how true that was. I, I used to stay up late, late at night with this tiny little kerosene lamp and so no one could see it and would read until like four in the morning. I read everything that I could get my hands on. So I think, you know, my education came through reading more than anything. Yeah, it was, it was, a, I, I look at it and I'm, I'm sure that there were things that I wanted to do that I wasn't doing. I think I wanted to go to camp as a kid and our parents would say, you live at camp. <laughs> That's funny. This is the thing that people send their kids away to have an outdoor experience. You are outdoors all the time. I will say that I resented greatly having to haul wood though. That was not my favorite thing. <laughs> But yeah, it was a beautiful, I think in a lot of ways, one of the most, you know, I wish, I wish I could have offered my son a similar experience, maybe a little more social interaction, but you know, there are people that I knew then that I still know to this day. So the friendships that we forged there were real and lasting and it was, it was beautiful. There's nothing like being able to look around you and all the land that your eyes land on is part of your family, you know, part of your yeah. family. It's not something that I can replicate in the city. That's for sure. Were there young people in families close by who were also being homeschooled at that time? So I, there were some folks who decided to homeschool their kids. And interestingly, our parents were taken to court and told that they had to put us in school. And the school board in the area basically did everything that they could do wrong, wrong. <laughs> so they showed up without notice to test us and quiz us and do all kinds of stuff. There was a process that the school board did not follow. And so they ended up, we ended up going to school for a brief period of time. I think I was in grade three age. And one time they came and tested us. And I think I was reading, should have been in grade three. I was reading at a grade 11 comprehension level or something. Wow. But I had, I think, deficiencies in other areas because I, reading was my passion. So that's the thing that I dove into. The school board said, you have to send your kids to school. My parents didn't. So they, I think they were going to hold them in contempt of court if they didn't. And they didn't get a lawyer for this. They defended themselves. <laughs> um, and I don't remember which one of the younger children was young, was a baby at the time. So they'd be in the courtroom and my mom is nursing in the courtroom. The court, the, the court system was not impressed with them because the courts generally don't like when you don't get a lawyer. They think of it as a disrespect to the process. But ultimately, the school board lost. And so they didn't have to send us to school as long as they were t educating us at home. But it was really, I mean, I think that part of that was there were a lot of kids in the area that we lived in. There are a lot of farmers. And so a lot of times people would keep their kids home to work on the farm. So during like planting season or harvesting season, 
But I think that the, they lo- the school board looked at it as a sort of neglect. But in reality, I mean, we were learning more at home than anyone was learning in the classroom. I mean, we were actually learning how to do practical things and academic things. In know? relation so. to academics, do you remember like which parent taught what or what stands out to you about the actual curriculum that they developed? I know that we had, they ordered all these books and we had all the, the you know, the, the readers and the, you know, the fill in your blank kind of exercise books that kids do often in class, you know, those handouts that they get, we had those. I think that the structure of that after, you know, fourth or fifth grade age, it, I think it was less structured. I, I can't remember. I, I do remember the Dick and Jane and spot run and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I remember something really specifically that my brother Isaiah had to get through this one reader, this reader that he needed. And they, our parents had bought him this BMX bike and he could not, although the bike was already purchased and at the house, he couldn't use it until he got through that book. And boy, did I push him through that book. <laughs> I wanted to ride that bike too. <laughs> Aww, that's hilarious. That's funny. I never heard that story. I hopefully he got what he needed out of the book. I don't know if I was just... <laughs> Let's just get through I this. was definitely very pushy about that. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. So I'm not sure which comes first, but I'm interested to know what it was like leaving being homeschooled and entering public school. And you recall the first time that you became aware of the color of your skin. Was that before you went to public school or after? Oh, um... I don't even, I can't remember the first time I knew. I certainly know that school was like crashing into a glass wall. You're like, whoa, (laughs) is that all you guys think about? Is that the only thing you can see when you look at me? I I don't recall before going to that one time when my parents were going to have to be held in contempt of court if we didn't go to school. That was certainly a wake-up call. We were pretty sheltered in that way because I think, you know, the people that our parents knew were the kind of people who weren't going to make that the foremost issue. And they did have some good friends there. There were a lot of of people who were kind of like-minded in some ways. I can't remember what age I was. Someone said, so the Martinez family, the father, Bob, was black and the mother, Barb, was white. And in my family, as you well know, our mother is black and our father is white. And I remember a kid saying to me, um, their mom should be with your dad and your mom should be with their dad. And I don't remember what age I was at, but I just remember thinking this is a really weird concept. And then uh, I can't remember who I asked, but it was probably our mother about half black and half white. And I remember looking to see where the line would be on. And there's, you know, I mean, the darker complexion you are often, you know, the palms of your hand or hands can be a little lighter and the back of your hand can be darker. And I remember looking at the line on my hand. I was like, ah, that's the line. <laughs> That is so touching. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's one of those strange things. I mean, if there's a way, people don't sometimes don't have to say that kind of stuff to you. Um, like just hearing that the two white partners in the two couples should be together and the two blacks should be together. I don't even know what age that was. Um, this was like after I'd gone to school for a little bit, our neighbors that I was friends with stayed over. And she wouldn't eat and they stayed over. So they were allowed to stay over. And in the morning she wouldn't eat. And she, and I said, why aren't you eating? And she said, because my mom told me I couldn't eat a nigger's cooking. So it was definitely present stuff. But I mean, society lets you know real quick that you are, you know, people used to stare at us. I remember we traveled with our dad to visit his family in the States. And we, so I don't know, I don't know if I'm outing something, but we called our parents by their first names and we got stopped at 
the border and they separated uh, Isaiah and I from our dad and asked if we were kidnapped. And is that our dad? And we're like, that's Roy. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah. The average family does not allow their children to call by first name. So they must've been really thrown off. Yeah, they were definitely thrown off. They were definitely thrown off. I don't know if you knew this explanation or if you've heard it since, but I think we asked why, why does everybody else call themselves mom and dad and call their parents mom and dad? And we don't. And our mom told us that one of the reasons is we didn't have a lot of other kids around us when we were little. My the oldest two, the two oldest of us, myself and Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people, she said, it's a learned behavior, unless your parents tell you go see your mom or whatever, and that they had never done that. And they also told us, you know, you don't give people titles unless they've earned them. Don't call people Mr. and Mrs. unless you feel they actually have deserved that respect because you, you know, sometimes people don't deserve to be. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you know, the titles that they hold, you know, that phrase with all due respect. Well, yep. With all due respect. <laughs> And maybe, you know, sometimes people haven't earned that respect. You know what I mean? I mean, I understand certainly more so in the U.S. that you wouldn't get away with that very easily (laughs) Um, because titles are a lot to people. But, yeah, that was part of the reason. Mm. Can you talk to me about the transition from homeschooling to ninth grade in public school? Well, I wanted to go because I wanted... I had friends and I wanted to see them. I had gone to like a friend's grade eight graduation and I was like, oh my God, this is so fun. People play volleyball and do all this stuff. And um, it was, it was quite, it was, I enjoyed it, but it was definitely a challenge because I didn't realize quite how difficult it would be. I didn't realize, not, I'm not talking academically. That was, I think one of the main things is academically, I didn't know what they expected of me. Um, because I didn't have that history of being tested all the time. And, you know, I didn't really realize what the expectations, if they said, go home and write a book review, I was like, it's going to be 600 pages or, you know, (laughs) so it took me a while to get to that. I was definitely not the best at math because I felt like, I mean, one of the ways that people get really good at math is they have the repetition of it. Well, we didn't spend eight hours of our day doing schoolwork. We spent the necessary time to get through lessons. So the times tables and stuff, you know, I, I don't rhyme them off that quickly, but it's funny because at that time in my life, I thought, oh my God, I must be so behind. But I realize now I'm like, no, actually, <laughs> in a lot of ways, I was well ahead of, of some of my classmates. How were you received in the school? Your friends or the fellow students and the teachers? Um, The teachers were reasonably nice. I think they also were a little not sure what to expect of us. The, I had a group of friends that I ended up, you know, spent the, every, the, for the years that I was in high school there that I was really close with. Um, there were some nasty people at that school, though. Like if I was on lunch, because your lunch, there were three lunch periods. And so if you didn't end up on one with your best buddies, if I was with my friends, I was fine. But if I had to walk by the cafeteria alone during lunch, there was a group of jocular individuals who would call me AfroTurf and like do all, it's like, it was, it was brutal. I would do pretty much anything to avoid walking by the cafeteria because they were always out there. They were the, the as my mother describes and the, the students in Central, like little dogs yipping at your ankles. Like they were there and they were, 
I'm sure that I wasn't the only person that they messed with, but they certainly messed with me. Since they only did it when there was nobody else with me. They, if I walked with my friends, they would keep doing what they were doing. But when I was alone, they would do that. Well, AfroTurf was their favorite. But I mean, I didn't, I didn't really, so I didn't shy away from school activities or anything. I joined the track team, right, a cross-country team. First year I was there. And then in the winter, the track team, I ended up playing soccer. I actually failed typing because... <laughs> I got a 49% in typing because I missed so many classes due to um, being away at track meets. And I, refu- I I couldn't miss a practice to go in and make up my assignments after school because that was the only way to do it. You had to go, May, you couldn't, you couldn't miss the class. You had to do the assignment and I wasn't going to miss track practice to, to go catch up on typing. So I got 49% in typing. <laughs> <laughs> Priorities, child. Do you remember yeah. how... Like as an adult looking back, do you know what your strategy of survival or resistance was in that climate? Ignore, 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 and stay alive. Do you know what I mean? I think, and I know, I know this for a fact because my our younger brother Ethan, the same. Okay, so there was a really, really she was like the all Ontario cross country champion, and her dad was the vice principal. And I don't know if he later became principal of the school. So he, I think he was the guy who registered me when I went in to go to school. He knew me because I ran with his daughter. But when my our youngest brother went to the same school, I think they said something along, that same guy said something along the lines of that he ended up getting expelled. And I think the reason was because he ended up getting in fights all the time. So when people would call him AfroTurf, he didn't keep going and scurry to the bathroom or whatever like I did. And he was told that he didn't know how to he didn't know how to shrink back like I had done. So I didn't confront that stuff. I mean, I'm so one of the really difficult things that people just don't put their heads around sometimes is that when you experience racism and set in a public setting like that, you feel shame. It's shameful. It's humiliating. And you don't want to call any more attention to it than has already been made. You want to disappear into the background somewhere and not have that in your face. So yeah, I mean, one of the effects of having that kind of people treating you that way is you feel like on some level you are deserving of that treatment, right? It's the, There's no way to avoid that, like having that feeling of like, wow. And I remember a friend of mine saying that I was, I remember being upset about something and you're just sad because you're different. I'm like, how the hell am I different? <laughs> I'm different. But I mean, you have to point that out to me is painful in and of itself. I mean, because until Michael Jackson came along... <laughs> There weren't a lot of people, like I remember I had friends who were obsessed with Michael Jackson, and I remember the relief that I felt that they could actually have affection for a Black person. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. Keep in mind that these are all white people, that they could actually have affection for a Black person, because I didn't see a lot of that in the society, you know? I want to go back to one thing about high school. So this is important, and it really, it kind of shaped some stuff for me at one point. There were some guys who started a band and they had a call. It was on the morning announcements at school saying they were going to audition for a lead singer. So I put on my best Pat Benatar voice because I've always loved to sing, as you know. 
And I went to go, I didn't tell anyone I was doing it. I didn't tell anything, say anything to anyone. I went after school to go audition for this band. I didn't care what kind of music they were doing. I was like, I want to be a star. So I went to audition and they literally said to me, you have to be good looking to audition. Mm, mm, mm. And I slunk away like a kicked dog and didn't say anything to anybody about it. I don't know if I talked about it for years. I don't even know if I told anyone. And so then they got this person to be their front person and she was horrible. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, I guess, I guess they got what they deserved because I could have torn those songs up. <laughs> well, it's just mind blowing because you're absolutely spectacular. And, you know, it's, that's a part of the conversation is what does racism do to your self-esteem? And as a, especially as a woman or a girl, when you're growing up, and the gaze of the girls coming at you, uh, treating you terrible, you know, being racist, and then the boys, and then the other layer is that you're teenagers. So you're hypersensitive to how you look and what they think of me. And like, just to add that other dimension, I think is important to bring to the conversation. Yeah, for sure. It's just, um, I'm sure lots of people are still having that experience. I mean, it's one of the reasons I've chosen not to live in an environment like that. Like I've chosen to be in a city so that I can see people who, when I look in their eyes, they reflect me, you know, and not to be isolated like that. I think we were really fortunate as kids because we had that one other family, an interracial couple with mixed children. And we had like a little bit of sort of like, okay, we're not the only ones. All the while, you're, you were homeschooled, and then you went off to high school, and you experienced racism, discrimination. Did you know that your mother was literally getting kicked down the stairs and had to have a soldier take her to school and was a part of a constitutional crisis that made world news? No. So I think the way I found out... <laughs> was there was a TV crew that showed up because, you know, aside from starting a food co-op with their friends and our parents were environmentalists, uh, you know, they were opposed to the spraying of spruce budworms bud because it was toxic to the environment. Um, and they were involved in a protest around the spruce budworm spraying because really they would just fly a plane and dump this uh, pesticide over large swaths of land, which I know we found out since that's not good for people and, and for plants and for animals and stuff. I mean, spruce budworms are not nice either, but definitely that was a problem. And so they, along with some of their friends, were objecting to that. And so they some, I think it was Global News at the time. Yes, Peter Silverman from Global News. He used to work for Global News. He later moved to City TV. I don't know. I don't have cable, so I don't know where he works right now. Came with a news, with a cameraman to interview the protesters about the uh, objection to the spruce budworm spraying, and they ended up figuring out for some reason, they probably were questioning our parents about, what are you doing here? What are all these ex-Americans doing, or Americans in Canada doing here? Because there was quite a small community of people from the U.S., and I think it came out. And so then Peter Silverman, I think himself, decided to do a profile of our mother. And yeah, I don't, and we didn't, of course, didn't have cable because nobody in that rural area had cable. I think they took her into New Lisford to interview her. And then we wanted to know, what are they interviewing her for? <laughs> you know, what does she do that's so special? And that's when it came out. And I remember I had a 4-H meeting and they told me I couldn't go because this movie was coming on TV and I had to watch it. And I was really upset about it. And it was a movie about 
it was Crisis at Central High. It was a movie about the Little Rock experience. And I was blown away. I was blown away. But I mean, really, that's kind of where it ended. It's not like in that point, reality kicks back in. You're still living where you live with the people surrounded by the people you live amongst. And so this is a thing. It was a it was a moment in history, but I don't think I really understood the full impact. I think the next thing that I saw on that was Eyes on the Prize, if I'm not mistaken, but I don't remember the age I was when I saw that. I was like, wow, that's something else. That's something else. You want to know something interesting? Peter Silverman, the list that you just described, emailed me a week ago. And he said, hi, I'm looking for Minnie Jean. Uh, I have these pictures that I took from that photo shoot. And we corresponded. I put him in touch with her and he sent her some of the pictures. Oh my God, that's amazing. And I have the hugest crush on the cameraman. Oh my God. (laughs) He looks like David Cassidy or something. He had this hair that just kind of flowed and flipped. And he was super tall. And I remember one time he was testing the light in the room and he had me sit there and he used my face to see how the lighting was. And I was so flattered. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I think his name was something like Eeyore or something like that, but I loved him. Mm-hmm. That is adorable. So take me <laughs> on the journey. You said you left in the 11th grade. Where did you go? Did, where did you finish school? Um, I left in grade 11 partway through the year and we, I didn't actually finished school at that point. I went to Toronto and in Toronto, I had gone to a non-semester school in Northern Ontario. And when I got to Toronto, I couldn't get into any school where I could join my credits back up in order to finish that year. So I lost my grade 11 year, ended up registering at an alternative school. And I didn't do a lot of schoolwork there, Um, ended up working. And I did that for many years. I didn't finish high school. And then I later went back to school when I was 23, I think. I mean, I'm not saying I didn't go. I tried to go back to school many, 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 many times. And I still, to this day, haven't officially finished high school, although I have, I got all my academic credits. I needed like at one elective or something like that. But I ended up going into a course called, it was a bridging course into university, into the um, continuing studies portion of, of York University. And I ended up getting a partial scholarship in the university. That At that time, you were studying women's studies. Yeah, it was a it was a part, it was a women's studies program. So the course that I took, I was actually pregnant with my son when I was in that course. They and I think we met on Thursday nights, or I can't remember what night of the week it was. And they pleaded with me not to have the baby in class. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I ended up getting the highest mark in the cl- in the class and getting a partial scholarship in New York University. I had. I had my son on, I think, the day of the week that the class was, and I was back in class the next week because it was not a super long course, and it was pretty intensive. So missing, I missed one to have a baby, but I came back for the next week. <laughs> That's so cute. What was it like for you to go from, I know there's, there's another town in between leaving northern Ontario. We lived in Sudbury for a while, which was uh, a little less homogenous, but not so much. But going to Toronto, like this incredibly richly diverse, multicultural city, like what was that like for you? It was kind of a religious experience, I would say. So, you know, the guy who said you have to be good looking to to go to audition for this band. I could name him, but I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> I will never forget that guy for that reason. Um, when I got to Toronto, I was like, oh my God, there are people around me all around who look like me. I mean, obviously there was some culture shock, but mm-hmm. I feel like I 
sort of, I made friends and I loved it. 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 I mean, I still have a lot of love for Toronto, even though I don't live there anymore. Just because it was a city um, where there were black people, there were brown people, there were all kinds of people. And it was like, to be part of something larger than yourself and not feel like, not to feel like a zit on the end of someone's nose. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, that's the way you, because there's so much, if you are living, if you are the only person of color in a given area or your only family, you are, you are never invisible. No, I know what you You mean. You can't land into a crowd. You can't, there is no way. I mean, to be, there's no way of, of, of uh, ever being inconspicuous or just blending in. It's not possible. I yeah. think back on those days and I, I remember anyone I saw that who wasn't white. You know what I mean? Because it was such a rarity. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. For me, it was moving from Sudbury, Ontario to Ottawa, Canada. I often talk to young people and I say it was literally my salvation. We were we lived yeah. in Chinatown. It was such a, a refreshing feeling because I was like, okay, I'm not this aberration. Like you were saying, you, you don't, people aren't targeting you. You just, you are, you can just be. And one of the interesting yeah. things is you were speaking about the kid who said you have to be good looking to be in the band. I'll tell you my experience because I'm curious about yours. When mm-hmm. I moved to a multicultural city and was surrounded by so many different ethnicities, when I found out from boys that they thought I was beautiful, I didn't believe it. I know. I know. That's what I, that was the experience that I had. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> You're not disgusted by me? What do you mean? You know, like that was really, I mean, that's what the effects of that kind of, of racism have on you. It, it creates almost a self-loathing. It creates shame. Yeah, it's, it's that kind of, it's a very, it's very, very powerful stuff, racism. It shown is. It almost takes you some time to adjust and to trust that what they're saying, like they actually, genuinely, and not just one person, but another person, like, are you serious all this time? I haven't been disgusting? Yeah, I know. And in addition to people pointing out the fact that you are beautiful, it makes you question like what was really going on and then add to that once you find out about this concept called racism and what it really means deeply so in its core in its roots it's like the golden ticket you're able to then decipher the fact that it's not something wrong with you it's something wrong with them i know i know yep and you know what i have to say i really it's important i think to say this too that i had i was we you know, I had a group of friends when I lived in that environment who we never spoke about race or racism. It was not a thing that we talked about. It was completely ignored, but they were good, solid friendships. You know what I mean? What, what, that sustained me in a time when I'm sure you had the same experience, right? When you're dealing with people calling you brownie and all the things that people chose to call us. I spoke on my podcast pilot about how from an early oh, yeah. It was usually just one person, but I always had an ally. And they didn't like conceptualize or have a deep understanding of racism, but they knew in their gut what was right and what was wrong. Like, yeah, yeah. They could feel. Yeah, and they don't like defend you, but they're just there. Their presence is important. And it's, you know, and it's, I'm certainly grateful for those presences um, because, you know, these are people that I'm still connected with on Facebook and stuff. And I've seen some of them in recent years. And uh, there's one person from high school who reached out to me 
I don't know how to explain it. I ended up blocking her on Facebook because she she was like, oh, I always really liked you in high school and blah, 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 blah. I said, well, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't the experience that I had in high school. I'm sorry. And she goes, I'm sorry that you feel that. It was like a very, basically telling me my perception of my experience was incorrect. You don't get to tell me that I didn't experience this because I know it very, 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 very well. You don't get to erase that because I need that as part of the fuel that I use to understand why it's so important to have people of different races around you, to be exposed to different cultures, to not to be in a, like a monoculture, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're born and raised in Northern Ontario, Canada, then... We went off in one direction. You ended up in Toronto. That's where you started university. You had your son, Thelonious. Then you moved to the United States. And during Uh the time when you were living in the United States, well, first, then what happened is due to uh, our mother's brother, Uncle Bobby, getting sick, our mother went to Little Rock and ended up staying there because she hadn't been home in decades. And she thought that it was time for her to come back home, be with her mother who was getting older. So Minnie Jean left and then subsequently me and Layla left. So it was just you and Thelonious and you were working in Maryland and you were living and working. Thelonious was in school and you were in a very, very bad car accident. Yeah, it was a year. It was almost exactly just over a year after I moved there, I think. So yeah, I got I got into a car accident, single vehicle collision, lost control on the soft shoulder, ended up basically wrapping my car around the tree and the car sort of frame kind of came in and basically crushed my whole lower body. So pelvis, two broke broken legs. And I ended up almost losing my leg right away. Um, I think they actually thought I was going to die. Um, And I think that they conned. I think our mother was on a trip doing, you know, working with students. I think she was in Memphis and they went to her and they said, you got to go, you got to go. Your daughter might not make it. You need to get home or get to her. So I don't remember that part, obviously, because I wasn't that. I do. But I ended up doing it. Yeah, I bet you do. What do you remember? I remember it was a Sunday morning. We just came back from Sojourn to the Past, which ironically, I have interviewed the executive director, Jeff Steinberg, in a previous episode. So we were on the tail end of Sojourn. We just came back from the Civil um, the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. Layla and I drove back to Little Rock and my phone rang really, really early in the morning and it was your friend, Anna. And I was like, hello. And she's like, are you sitting down? And every, like, it's happening to me right now. Every, I don't even know how to explain it. It's like, if anybody ever asks you if you're sitting down, it's, it's a signal that the news coming after is not going to be good. And no, don't ever say that to me, even if there's bad news. Okay. I don't ever want to hear those words. (laughs) Yes, I'm sitting down permanently. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh. I'm glad you, you like shook me out of my (sighs) feeling. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's heavy. So she, um, she asked me if I was sitting down and then I sat up, like I did the opposite because I was in bed and I sat up abruptly and I was like, what's going on? What's going on? And she's like, I don't know how to tell you this. Morningstar has been in an accident. I'm like, is she okay? Is she okay? Is she okay? I kept saying like, and I was just like, just tell me if she's okay. And she's like, she's in the hospital. Okay. So then like next, so she gave me phone numbers to call the doctors. So at this point, okay, Layla, she, is, she lived in the apartment complex I lived in and her son and my son were friends and he had slept over at her house. So that's why he was at uh, Kadeem's house that night. Okay. 
So that's how she first found out. So Layla saw me really, really, really rattled. And so she got up and she's like, what's wrong? And I didn't have the, A, I was on the phone and they were giving me information. And Layla Mm -hmm. was simultaneously like, what's going on? What's going on? And I was writing it down because they were telling me everything. And it was just, yeah, it was so I had to tell Layla and then build up the courage to call our mom. And she was on another similar trip with an organization called Facing History and Ourselves. And I, just because you know our mom, I didn't know how to tell her. No, I I don't. Like, I had to tell the person who was hosting her, like, we really need to treat this delicately because she's going to freak out. So... Uh, so when she took the phone, I told her and she threw the phone. So, so I, I think that the person who she was with had to like calm her down and then spoke to me and then relayed the information. And the person was so generous and awesome. They, they got her in the car and they drove her, I think two or three hours to come meet us. And then we jumped on an airplane, um, to go be with you in Baltimore. Every parent's worst nightmare. I'm knocking on wood all around me right now. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't, I do remember some, I remember thinking, oh my God, I was in the spin and I was like, I'm going to be fine. And then I just felt, I was like a horse kicking you in the stomach. I I don't know, farm kid, that's the the closest comparison I can come up with. And I do remember the, because I think I was airlifted and I do remember the emergency personnel asking me, does anywhere hurt? Does anywhere hurt? And I remember telling them I couldn't feel my leg. I ended up having what's called compartment syndrome. So the swelling happens because it was a crushing injury of my lower right leg. I had my left leg was a compound fracture. Pelvis was broken in like five places. Fingers broken. We didn't figure out the fingers right away, but because there were more serious issues, like ruptured, like lots of injuries. Um, Fortunately, I didn't break my neck, but yeah, all lower body injuries. So I had what's called compartment syndrome, which is where the pressure builds up so much that it cuts off the circulation and your tissue starts to die. So what they do with compartment syndrome is cut away tissue. So really they did, they kind of cut away at my leg quite a bit. And every day it was crushed though, like broken tibia, all the bones were messed up in the lower leg. So they did what's called a limb salvage. They said, okay, we're going to try and see if we can save this leg. I think, I don't remember how long it was. The accident was in February, 2002. And then I ended up being transferred to the rehabilitation hospital. And I was walking and, and doing stuff with the injured leg, but I had one of those big metal halos around my leg and all kinds of skin grafts and all kinds of things. Then I ended up getting um, MRSA, which is an antibiotic resistant staph infection in the hospital. And the infection got into the bone and then uh, they ended up amputating my leg three months after the accident. Then I had, interestingly, I think probably because of, you know, the trauma and the infection and all this stuff, my other leg, which had a com- had a compound fracture, didn't heal. It took like two years before that leg actually healed. Several, several surgeries to sort of restore. Well, first I had a rod in the femur and that wasn't working. And then I they took the rod out and put a plate and then it came loose. So they had to do another surgery and I had an amazing doctor, Dr. Errol Bennett. I love that man. He was, uh, he's an orthopedic surgeon and we formed a really good connection. He wanted me to get well and he did pretty much everything that he could do to get me well. I had a bone growth stimulator that I wore on my leg at night and he finally ended up doing a bone graft. 
and doing uh, putting a plate and 28 screws into my leg and it's healed and it's good but I did lose the other leg I've had a lot of surgery since then it's one of the reasons I use a wheelchair rather than a prosthetic because I had difficulties with the healing of my leg I had another I had MRSA two more times after that and I've had like five revision surgeries on my the amputated side so I use a wheelchair for mobility now but I'm pretty fast <laughs> <laughs> you're amazing so amazing I I've always looked up to you you know that but like there's so many things about your strength that are just so admirable and I really want your story to be a testimony to your like fortitude and your strength, but also to shed light on some of the experiences of being somebody who has two legs and who's walking one day and then having this incredibly tragic experience of the car accident and then the journey of you think maybe your leg can be saved and then ultimately it's not and now being in a wheelchair. You really have to put yourself in someone else's shoes or I mean I don't think that we have I think it's a conscious effort that we have to make in order to understand what it's like for people you know I when my when I remember when I was in the hospital and all I was thinking about is my son I'm like I can't leave my son now and maybe that was because I know that they told you you know that you need to get here quickly because we don't you know they didn't know if I was going to make it there could have been many complications right after the accident and I was really badly injured. Fortunately, I didn't break my neck. I guess that's the thing, because that might have been the end. But I don't, I have no idea. I just remember thinking I need to, I can't, my son is young. He he needs me. I can't leave him. And that was sort of like the, I've got to be here. I've, it's certainly been challenging. There's certainly been times when I'm like, this sucks. But I also think, uh, you know, in those times, I've met so many people in the hospital. I've met people, I've, I don't know how to explain this. There's something in my body, in my brain that wasn't going to let that be the end of me. You know what I mean? Like, and I think I, I do try and exemplify that in my life. Like I work hard. I do a lot of things. I'm involved in a lot of activities on the board of directors of my cooperative where I live. I've been on the maintenance committee for years. I've chaired projects like construction projects in my building. I sing in two choirs. I sing in a small choir in a church in North Vancouver with a really talented musician named Diane Lyons. So I had a huge audition yesterday and a workshop in my other choir, just a hundred person choir, the City Soul Choir that I love so much. And so, you know, I see the obstacles. I see them. I remember when I was going to audition for choir, I was like, how am I going to do this? The stage is a thing that I don't know how I'm going to get on. Most stages are not accessible. Get on that, people. You need to make stages accessible so more people with disabilities can use them. Well, there there are certain things that it's really difficult to do. Like I have friends who are musicians who perform at clubs and the, the access to see the their show is up a winding and dangerous flight of stairs. And I really have to figure, is it worth it? You know, is it worth it to try and do this? I've gone to shows and I can't see one lick of the entire show because as soon as people stand up in their enthusiasm, I can't see the show. So what is it there, that we as a society need to step back and... It shouldn't be an afterthought to create accessibility in cities or in schools. Well, I mean, if you build for everyone and everyone has access, you know, like a ramp, everyone can use a ramp. Everyone can't use the stairs. Exactly. Wider doors. on. Okay. So why, when you go to the airport and you're in the, you go to use the bathroom is the accessible stall where everybody's changing their clothes, where the flight attendants are changing their clothes or 
the mom with little kids is in there. If you build for everyone in the first place, you don't need to modify. And I mean, that should be part of any city's planning as, as they continue. Not just, I mean, Canada doesn't have even have a standardized accessibility mandate like the Americans with Disabilities Act. At least that's something. Canada is different based on where you are. So like Toronto, the big, beautiful city of Toronto, a lot of the subway stations are not accessible. There are not elevators, there's not access. I heard about a protest several years ago where University Station, which is right in the financial hub and where all the hospitals are, a group of people organized a protest where people with disabilities blocked the entrance to the subway. And when people were rushing and going, I need to get to work, I need to get to work. And the people with the accessibility challenges were like, so do we and we can't because there's no elevator down to this station. When I lived in Maryland, I um, at one point I wasn't driving and I was working because you need insurance. I needed health insurance because I still had a lot of health challenges. And your employment is where you get your insurance. So I had to use their version of uh, like accessibility transit. I don't know how many times I sat out in a snowstorm waiting for this thing to show up and they never came. And you, the way it worked is you couldn't call in about your ride until it was over, I think, 45 minutes past the window that they were supposed to show up. And I don't know how many times I just sat there. They said they came, they didn't come, like trying to get around, trying to be, um, get to my job, which, you know, I needed my job to raise my son and also to have the insurance that I had was very challenging. So I had to figure out a way. I ended up uh, starting to drive again because there was no way around it. I wasn't going to be able to use existing transportation or the accessible transportation that was available to people. Vancouver is much better. I think all of the buses that I would access and the SkyTrains are all at this point accessible and the technology's come a long way. But there are a lot of places it's just like, you know, you do sort of shut yourself out of certain things because you realize I'm like, oh yeah, they want to go to that cafe. Well, that's a place where if once I get in there, I'm never going to get out unless I make six tables get up and move because of the way they have people packed into tiny little cafes and stuff. It's not the end of the world, but yeah, I would like to see more access for people like to see. I mean, and that's, it, it often, you know, this is like racism. People don't necessarily see it's out there until they either have a family member who's experienced it or they have someone of a different race marry into their family and they witness the stuff that happens to them. Accessibility issues, it's along the same lines. We don't need, we don't have to have that personal experience. What is your advice? to bring awareness so that people can become more conscious. And it's not your responsibility to have a solution. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Okay, well, the first thing I'm going to say, and I'm sorry, but you see that little handicap placard on that parking spot? Don't even park there for a minute. I don't care if you're just going to get your flat white latte or whatever the case may be, and you'll be right back. Don't use it because you are blocking someone's ability to get through their day. Okay, that's number one. I know that that sounds like trivial and not such a big deal, but I have been, I've had my, I almost got run over by a woman one time because I parked in the accessible spot to go into the grocery store and she pulled her Mercedes in into the fire lane and parked against my door. Well, I need to get my wheelchair into my car and I can't. So I had to sit there and wait for her to come out. And when she did come out, I'm like, please don't do this. It's really important that I'm able to get my wheelchair in the car. And she jumped in her car, cut her wheel, pinning me between, like she didn't crush me or anything, but there was an implied threat in her action. 
and gunned her vehicle. But I was like about to be squished. That's how I felt. Um, and people react very strongly if you confront them around issues of like, I think they're embarrassed. Okay. So that's, I think what it is. It's sort of like when you say, you know, that kind of feels a little bit racist, what you just did right now. People become enraged and defensive and fragile. And this is the case with around accessibility issues. I see very similar behaviors when you ever question whether someone had maybe thought about it that way and say, you know, maybe you shouldn't park there just because you're running in just for a minute into Starbucks because I really need that spot. And maybe I'm trying to go to work too. And now I'm late because you had to, you know, there's one spot for me there and 90 for you. Please don't do that. So I would like for you to paint an analogy. So we live in a white supremacist patriarchal society. So as it relates to people with disabilities, how would you frame that so that people can put that in their mind as they move through their daily lives? You know, I don't know how to sort of tell people, you know, you shouldn't have these biases. You feel like that it's a society that's catered to certain segments of society and not to others. So how does it... Oh, absolutely. Can you describe well, it from your vantage point? It's, it's a less than, greater than sort of equation. I mean, people with disabilities are almost considered a special interest group because that we don't take up enough, well, I mean, we take up more of the population than people like to admit, but often people are not fully able to be engaged in their society because of accessibility challenges, because of economic stresses from disability. I mean, these are real factors. I remember the the job that I worked at before my current job in the interview, I realized I'm like, these people are looking at me and going, oh, she might be a problem because she has a disability. What are we going to have to do special for her? And I had to throw out in the interview, I said, please do not look at my wheelchair and decide that you think that I wouldn't be a good candidate. I'm fine. I'm going to be able to do the work. I will make it work. And I was later told by another coworker that one of the women who I would be working directly with, she's like, oh, well, if she's using one of those power chairs, that's never going to work here. We don't have space for that. The job that I have now, I remember being terrified when I was offered the interview because I was like, I don't want to disclose to these people that I have a disability prior to being offered an interview because that could be, you know, a lot of times uh, I think employers say, oh man, what kind of accommodations are we going to need to make for this person? How will it affect us? I mean, there are employers that are committed to hiring people with disabilities, but there are a lot of others who just don't want the hassle. I mean, buses do that. They're like, no, sorry, no more wheelchairs. We're full. I think we always have to be questioning our biases, like questioning, okay, like I had an experience recently. On my lunch break, I went to go get something from a store. I parked on a street around the corner from the store, jumped out of my car, got my wheelchair out of my trunk, and was wheeling up a very large, wide sidewalk. And this man came along holding his daughter's hand, and he pulled his daughter off the sidewalk into the muddy um, median mm-hmm. so that I could pass. And I was like, oh, my God, you just taught your child that she needs to fear me. Mm. And I'm looking at this beautiful young girl who could have been my child. She was the same complexion as me, same kind of hair. And I, was, I, I felt my heart sink. I was like, wow, you think you're being courteous. But what you're really doing is acting like I'm something to be feared. 
And I don't need that much space. My chair is not that wide. <laughs> As the list goes on, I mean, I've been together with you and it's kind of like the microaggressions are never ending. We were leaving, I think it was San Francisco. I can't remember where I was. I was Jeff Steinberg going through the airport, going through the, um, can't remember if it was bag check or whatever it was. And the woman at the counter turned to Jeff and said, can she walk? <laughs> so he was asking him if you can walk. Yeah, but I give him credit. He was like, you'll need to ask her. <laughs> But I mean, that kind of, and I've had people do some of the most ridiculous things. Like one time I went to Ikea and I found this beautiful lamp in the as is room that was already assembled. And I had it in my cart and I'm pushing it to my car. And this woman came up, she goes, oh, I'll help you. And I said, no, it's okay. I have it. Thank you. And she goes, no, no, no. And she yanked the cart out of my hand and jammed the cart through the door. The lamp was too tall the way she did it. And it smashed the top of the lamp that I just purchased with a no oh return policy. But I mean, like that sort of paternalistic approach to things. And it's like, okay, I will let you know what assistance I need. I will, I will express my concerns. Like just, it's, I, I, it's fun. It's kind of weird because I'm still very, very conscious of issues around race and uh, you know, access and stuff like that. But there's, I'm not even sure that race is the biggest issue in my life at this point, because it's almost like, okay, so intersectionality, <laughs> the the disability almost trumps race. Does that make any sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's constantly having to adapt and shift. And I mean, it's it fluctuates, right? Depending on the setting. Yeah, it's, on, the it's on a flux. That's for sure. It's for sure. Absolutely. But the one thing that I will say is it pisses me off enough that it fuels me. And I don't mean fueling in a rage-based fuel. I'm I'm like, no, no, no is not a word that I want to hear because of this, because there's a state of mind that you are in that it's like, okay, I know people that every part of their body works just fine, but I certainly would think that they have more difficulties in life than I do. And I think that that relates to how I Maybe it's how I approach the world, how I go about doing things. I see obstacles, but I also see opportunities, teaching moments. And I don't know. I'm like I said, I'm, and like you said, there's, the only thing that's changed is the mobility, you know, and maybe the comfort, comfort level of my body. Because sitting in a wheelchair is hard on your body. It affects your digestion. It affects your muscle tone, all those different things, your posture. But, you know, that the physical stuff is one thing, but I don't think... I crashed my car, but I didn't break my mind. Does that make any sense? <laughs> preach on, sister. You sh- preach, preach, preach. That is the word of the day. To what degree do you feel like by you merely being yourself and your rightful space and your voice, do you feel like people reflect like a, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean it like that. And I mean, like to the point where then you have to take care of them because they're so offended. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Continuously. So um, can you give me examples? Because I want people um, to know that that, that that needs to be corrected. I mean, maybe this is just a story about how I handle the situation. So my car was in the shop and I was, they called me to say it was ready to be picked up. So I took, it's in Coquitlam, which is a trek. So I took the SkyTrain and then I was getting on, it's a kind of one of these little mini buses, the ones where they have to use the lift to get you up in there and all this stuff. So I got to the station, it was super hot in the summertime and I'm sitting outside, I have my headphones on, the bus pulls up. It's a woman driving the bus. Not that that's relevant, but she gets out. And I think it is relevant because I think she said woman to woman, you know, I can have this conversation, I think, possibly. So she got out to operate the lift to get me on. And I smiled and said, hello. And she looked at me point blank and said, what happened? 
we have no relationship. We have no connection. We have, and you are going to, sure, my chair is the elephant in the room, but it's not the only thing I think about in the course of my day, but you just made it the only thing that was relevant to you about me. So she said, what happened? And I knew exactly what she was asking me. And so I smiled and I looked in her face and I said, oh, I took my car to the mechanic and I'm just going to pick it up. (laughs) I I looked at her and I was like, honey, I'm not playing that game. It may be the only thing you're able to think about right now, but it's not going to be how I frame myself. I mean, I ultimately did explain to her. I said, oh, are you talking about the, you know, like it was an afterthought to me. And I did. I said, had a car accident, da, da, da. And then people... It frequently launched into the thing, that must be so hard. And I generally say to them, dying would have been a lot worse, and I'm really happy to be here. Hello. <laughs> because everybody, and like, because a lot of times people want to frame it as this huge tragedy. And I'm like, well, actually, the way I'm seeing it, I almost died. I didn't. I was in extreme and brutal pain for a very long time. Doctors had me on a toxic soup of opioids that half of America has has become addicted to <laughs> and and they're struggling now to figure out ways of getting people off these medications and that didn't happen to me um so i dodged another bullet in that respect i look at it as a success story rather than a tragedy because yeah i'd be happy if my other leg would just grow back but i'm not i'm not an insect or an iguana or something where <laughs> grow a new tail Kids often ask me that. Is it going to grow back? Kids ask me that question. Uh Is it going to grow back? I'm like, hopefully. (laughs) I I I have to respect like kids and their honesty because I think that it it can also be equally as problematic if people like it's too uncomfortable to talk about that it doesn't get talked about. I'm not saying that if someone sees you in a wheelchair, that it's an open invitation, open invitation into your personal life. Not that at all. But I do hope for the, that the language and the conversations and the experiences be reflected instead of it being, like you said, an afterthought or something taboo or let's move off the sidewalk. Like, literally and figuratively from people's experiences. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's again, it's one of these things where part of, you know, I think, okay, so when my son was young and he was going to a school here in Vancouver, I had to go in and meet with the vice principal for something. And the school is completely not accessible. So they had to meet me across from the school in the gym, which is on a ground level. And I was, I questioned them about it. I said, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a little disappointed that the school is not accessible. What happens to children who live in this area who have accessibility challenges and if they need to go to the school? And he said to me that it is, he's like, well, the schools that have adapted and put an elevator in, it's a very expensive thing. And then nobody comes. I said, well, you don't, you don't obligate people to show up because you put an elevator in. It opens the door so that people can feel the comfort level so that they might start showing up. Put in an elevator and you will see the shift. Yeah. It will also expose other children to children with accessibility challenges and normalize people in, in, in the environment. I mean, part of the problem we have is that the challenges to keeping, uh, having or getting access to a full-time job being employed by a company if you have a disability, accessing a building, transportation, healthcare, like in terms of healthcare cost challenges. I mean, it puts people with 
accessibility issues into, oftentimes into poverty, um, isolation, lack of social interaction. I mean, that's not the case all the time. I'm irrepressible, so there's no way I was going to go into isolation. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but it is, the, it's hard. It's difficult. It's not easy. It is certainly not a straight path that you can see. So first of all, creating, you know, accessibility, making it normalized. Like the fact that we have to talk about it is the problem. We need to take people seriously when they say they need access to things. It's not, it's not a, it's not a favor we're doing for people. It's allowing people to be part of society. And it can't just be, it's just like, anti-racism work. It can't just be the people who are being affected by it directly and painfully who are the ones driving it. It has to be larger society. It has to be. You can't just have black people yelling about racism. You need white people yelling about racism and actively working against it. And that's, that's the way this is. I mean, we need architects. We need contractors. We need larger society to see access as a real a necessity, not an option. A necessity. It needs to be a necessity. I don't know how many stages I've sung on. <laughs> many, many, many stages with the various choirs and things that I've done over the years. And I can think of usually theaters. I think it's Michael J. Fox Theater in Burnaby has an accessible stage. The Chan Center at UBC has an accessible stage. These are large venues that are built for and I think that the accessibility is primarily around pushing big carts of equipment. It's not a, necessarily about people. <laughs> mm. But every church, church that I sing in, even the ones who have done renovations, like the church that I sang in this morning, if I want to go to the bathroom from the sanctuary, I have to go out the back door where the ramp has been built, down a hill, around, in through the front door of the church and into the basement where the bathrooms are. Just and the the stage is not accessible. So when I sing with that choir, we sing on the floor. There's you know there's no graceful way to get your wheelchair on stage. Um, <laughs> but I mean thinking about those things and that's and the the members of these churches and congregations are often elderly. We have an aging society where people do need more access. So I mean that's just I mean it's a mindset. It's a way of thinking. It's an othering of people. And I mean, historically, people with disabilities have been relegated to the confines of institutions. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's that deep. It's not accidental. It just hasn't been rectified. That's what I would say. It has not been rectified. But so, it's important for us to be in our communities and out and doing things and involved and engaged in its quality of life for us and exposure. And I think I bring a lot to the lives of the people that I know. And they bring a lot to me. But they would miss out on that if... I couldn't get to them. You know what I mean? If we keep people not able to access the full range of society, then we miss out too. You know, we really do. Oh, Morningstar, this is so awesome. You talk about being a member of a lot of different choirs. You have the most beautiful voice in the whole entire universe. I was wondering if you could share your exquisite voice with the Roots of the Spirit community. Yeah. 